Okay, the mic is working. So I'm happy to be here today. Uh, it's good to be any place, but here in especially. <laughs> and, and the talk I'm going to give is on gratitude. And you know what? I didn't have any for a really long time. So a couple years ago, uh, UCLA Oral History Library was doing a series on Buddhism in Los Angeles. And they contacted me and asked me if I'd be willing to be one of the interviewers or interviewees about Buddhism in Los Angeles. I had been at UCLA for 10, 11 years as a Buddhist chaplain for the University Religious Conference. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So it was like six, seven hours of interviews, long time. And I didn't really know what to expect because nobody ever wanted to interview me for six or seven hours. <laughs> so we were talking and we were talking and then around the second or third day, he said to me, what are you grateful for? And I said, I don't know. Should I be grateful? Didn't I do it all myself? Wasn't it all because of me? And he looked at me in sort of a quizzical way, like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> you know? So I, I went and thought about it. And, and son of a gun, I was one of the contributing factors to everything that happened in my life. But there were 999 other factors that went into it as well. So I couldn't really say it was about me or for me, and then I thought back and said, well, what or who am I grateful to? And the first person that came to mind was Houston Smith. This guy was a trip. If you read his, his life story, what a life he had. And I got to meet him in person at UCLA. And he, at that point, he was this little old man. He had had a hip replacement, I think, or a knee replacement, so he didn't walk very well. But his eyes were like 18 years old, and they just glowed. He was so happy. And I went up to him and said, you know what? I'm the reason, you're the reason that I'm a Buddhist today. I read your book religions of the world. And I read the chapter on Buddhism, and it made so much sense to me that I said, i got to become a Buddhist. So it wasn't too inspirational about me becoming a Buddhist, but he was a key component of me wanting to be a Buddhist. So I got the yellow pages out. Remember those? <laughs> And I found a meditation center, which is where I now live. And so they said, free instruction on how to meditate. And I said, okay. It was a cold and rainy night. <laughs> I was able to find parking, which today you can't. And, and I went in not knowing what to expect, which is the story of my life. And, and I was told to sit in the corner. Here's a cushion, cross your legs. We're going to have 15 minutes, five-minute break, 15 minutes, five-minute break, 15 minutes. 
And then Shinzen will come down and give a Dharma talk. And I said, Shinzen is going to come down and give a Dharma talk? What's Dharma? Well, I sat there. It was terrible. My knees hurt. My back hurt. They didn't have the heat on. It was cold. I'm thinking, this is meditation. And then Shinzen came down. And Shinzen was this nice Jewish guy from L.A. who went to Japan and became ordained as a Shingon monk while he was studying Japanese. And then he came back, and he was living at this meditation center, and he was the vice abbot. So I'm going to listen to this Jewish guy from L.A. <laughs> who went to Japan talking about Buddhism. <laughs> and you know what? How lucky was I that that was the case? Because he sort of looked like me. I sort of looked like him. English was his first language. He knew how to explain things that I had no idea even existed. And I said to myself, I want to see the world the way he does. If I have to meditate, if I have to suffer for an hour, I'll do it. Because the way he perceives reality is so different from the way I perceive reality. So I was there for a couple years with Shinzen, and then I said to Shinzen, you know what, I would like to study with an Asian monk, someone who was born in a Buddhist country to get that perspective. And he said, oh, right down the street, Crenshaw Boulevard, <laughs> there's a guy named Dr. Ratnasara. And he has a class, and you could sit in with him. And he became a monk at 14. And now he's in his 60s, and he knows a lot of stuff, and he speaks really good English. And so I said, okay, thank you, Shenzhen. So Dr. Ratnasara, gave an Asian perspective to my experience of Buddhism in Los Angeles. And I learned so much, not necessarily from what he said, but what he did. How do monks act? How do monks talk? How do they react? How do they respond? And you can't get that from a book. You got to be in the presence of a monk or a nun in order to sort of feel what it's like to be them in your way of looking at it. So I studied with him for quite a while, and he said to me, have you ever thought about becoming a monk? I said, well, no, not really. Doesn't that mean you can't have sex anymore? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, but there's more to life than that. I said, really? It was sort of a hard sell. <laughs> but after thinking about it, I asked him, well, if I become a monk and don't like it, can I give it back? Can I give back the ordination? He said, sure. He said, you don't have to stay a monk your whole life. You could just be a monk for three months or a year or two years. Try it out. Try it on for size. See how it feels. I said, okay. So 1994, I became a novice monk. 1996, I became a fully ordained monk. And I lived at the meditation center. I have a room. I got health insurance. And I did a lot of stuff. Community service for 20 years. 
I was answering the phone, and they would say, Kusla, could you help us out? We got some people at this prison who are Buddhists, and it'd be so nice if you could come up and talk to them. And my response was, you have Buddhists in prison? How can that be? Everything I've read about Buddhism didn't lead me to believe that we would ever end up in prison, and yes, we do. So I, was, I did prison volunteer work. I did central juvenile hall volunteer work. I did hospital volunteer work. I did police department volunteer work. I did like a lot of volunteer work as, as a monk, and probably because I looked like this, and people could relate to that. Sort of a big guy, didn't seem too smart right away. We can get along with him, you know. So it, it, I have to say that as I go back to this gratitude thing, these people were key in me having the lifestyle that I have today. Then there was this guy named Jeff Gold. Well, I met Jeff Gold at a Dharma talk. And Jeff Gold was a record producer and executive. He was one of the first employees of Rhino Records in Westwood Village. And, and we sort of hit it off. And he said to me, Kusla, you need a computer, man. I said, I need a computer? Why? He says, because you have a lot of information that other people would find interesting and maybe useful, and you could have your own web page on the internet. I said, internet? Web page? He said, yeah, yeah, no, it's the, it's the thing now. Everybody's got one, and you have stuff to offer. I will do this for you. I will buy you a computer, but you're going to have to pay me back but you can take as long as you want to pay me back. So I said, well, okay, that sounds good. So I got a computer, Apple, Apple computer, that little sort of foam green one that looked like a TV set. And I said to myself, you know what, Jeff? The computer is sort of cool. There's like a lot of people inside talking to me. And I'm going, I didn't think that would happen not realizing it was programmed and there was instructions and it was video and audio and all that kind of stuff. So I paid him back in less than a year and that computer changed my life. Not only did it change the way I thought, because now I've got a bunch of folders in my head instead of brain cells, <laughs> but it allowed me to extend my talks at a global level. I could talk to people anywhere in the world if they had a computer. So I put my first page up. I had a picture of myself. I had my address. And I was so proud. Look at this. Look what I did. It's a picture of me on the internet. Well, nobody ever found that or saw that or commented on that. But it was a way I had a chance to sort of practice. Because when you're a monk, you sometimes have a lot of extra time, and I would just practice, practice, practice making stuff. So now, now, I have urbandharma.org. <laughs> 1,500 pages. Visited every day by a bunch of people. How cool is that? I have my own YouTube channel. Kusala's Urban Dharma. Wow, how is that going? It's going.
going pretty good. <laughs> I've got a podcast, Kusla's Urban Dharma Podcast. A lot of people going there listening to what I have to say. How cool is that? Changed my life completely. I'm out there just doing all sorts of stuff in a virtual way. And you know what? When it's a virtual way and you're doing it in your room at the meditation center, you don't even have to smell good. <laughs> you're just doing it. Man. So Jeff Gold really made a big difference in my life. He didn't realize what it would turn out to be. But I look back and I go, I am so grateful to Jeff Gold. Then there's Reverend Karuna Dharma. This is a woman who used to be a school teacher who went to UCLA, took a class from Dr. Thich Tianan on Buddhism, became a Buddhist nun. When Dr. Thich Tianan died, she took over running the meditation center. She's the one that said to me after my ordination, we'd like you to work for us. Really, what am I going to do? She said, you can quit your job, and we're going to make you residential manager. You get to find people to live here and pay rent. And the rent they pay will allow us to pay for the mortgage and insurance and maintenance and all the other stuff. And it's so much fun. I go, well, if it's fun, okay. It's no fun at all. <laughs> it's a big pain to interview people try to see if they'd fit into the meditation center. Living in five old houses built around 1910, sharing bathrooms and kitchens. Okay, who gets to buy the toilet paper this month? Nobody's hand goes up. Oh, man, no. Okay, who didn't clean up the dishes? Nobody admits to that. Oh, man, no. You're not paying your rent. I can't afford it. It's $400. You can't afford it. I can't afford it. Oh, man, what am I going to do now? So I learned a lot about me and human beings and how difficult it is to live with each other. And it's just as difficult if you're family because family, you sort of have to live together. This is sort of, well, we're going to live together. And it still doesn't work very well. So at one point I thought, maybe I'll just live on a lake, a little cottage, all alone. And then Shinzen contacted me after he heard me talking that way and said, no, man, we need you in L.A. This is where all the suffering happens. You can't go to the lake. <laughs> There's not enough suffering at the lake. You won't learn anything. Okay. So I've been at the meditation center for 30 years now. Downtown Los Angeles, Koreatown. Oh, man. Does it ever get better? No, it doesn't get better. You just get used to it. Oh, well. And then one other thing I am grateful for are all the people that don't like me, don't understand me, don't want to be around me. Those people allow me to know I still have a few imperfections to work on. Because <laughs> if everybody loves you and likes you, you just think it's, I'm perfect. You'll never be perfect. 
Maybe when you're enlightened, you'll be perfect, but nobody will notice the perfection, <laughs> you know? So I'm grateful that I'm not perfect because it allows me to work on stuff, and that stuff being me. And I tell you what, during the, during the COVID thing, man, two years, watching YouTube channel every day, it's just you watching the YouTube channel. And then you start thinking about this stuff, and you start wondering if this will ever end. And if you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, will I die? I mean, there was like a lot of stuff, this COVID thing. And now we're sort of past that, and we're all trying to go back to normal. And we don't have the old normal to go back to. It died. We have the new normal to go to. And a lot of people are resisting the new normal because it doesn't feel familiar. But you know what? It always changes all the time. It never feels familiar. Every day is the first day of your life. Every day is the best day of your life. And so you have to recognize that. You got to wake up to this present moment experience of your life and say, wow, this is really good. I'm still breathing and thinking and talking, you know? And that first cup of coffee in the morning, it still tastes wonderful. And then you go on your YouTube channel and you go, wow, look at all the people that visited me over the night. Cool. And how about that Facebook channel, Kusla? You've been on Facebook now since 2008. You have 35,000 followers and friends. Really? I've never met any of them. <laughs> wow. So this stuff is good. This stuff, this thing called gratitude, what it seems to do, what I have come to understand is that it allows you to experience the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena in your life. Now, that's a long sentence, but interdependence means that we are always connected and we are always interconnected with everything. We can never stand apart from that. It's never been about us, even though that's what we think and that's how it feels. And it doesn't seem that we're a process. It seems we're more of an event. Yes, I'm an event. But then when you start reflecting, you realize that, no, no, you're just a process, man. You're just a river. You know, and you just keep flowing. And this happens, and that happens, and this happens, and you can't even take credit for the good, and you shouldn't take credit for the bad, because it really isn't about you. It's just circumstances and this interdependence thing that has come together, and that's why this is happening. You go, okay. The burden slowly gets lifted. The burden slowly gets lifted about having to be the center of your universe because now everybody is working with you. Optimism, working against you, not so optimistic, or we're just all working. And who knows if it's for or against. You don't know because it never ends. It never comes to fruition. There's no end game. 
There's no end game. That's the scary part about the spiritual path is you don't ever get to the end. It's only the journey. Just always walking that journey. It's walking here, walking there, walking here. Somebody once said, I think it was Stephen Wright, the comedian. He says, every place is in walking distance if you have the time. And that's how the spiritual journey feels to me. Everything is in walking distance if I find the time. And thankfully, I've had a number of people in my life who have encouraged me to go in this direction and discouraged me from going in that direction. And now when I look back, I say to myself, you know what? Life was pretty good. Life was pretty good. And as I get older and older, I want to do less and less. And then one day, I'll just be doing nothing. <laughs> now, I <laughs> thank you all for listening. I brought my harmonica today, and I asked Andy if he would accompany me. And Andy said yes, he would. And so we're going to do a little blues today. And I asked Andy, I said, should we rehearse a little bit? He said, no, no, no. That'll ruin it, man. You can't rehearse the blues. <laughs> you just got to play them. <laughs> 